Right. Um, well, this morning, open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. Hope everybody has a Bible. If you don't, uh, maybe somebody sitting next to you will continue with their name tag friendliness and let you read off of theirs with them. <clears throat> the other day, we had the, the privilege to, to travel to a meeting with the other regional pastors uh, in Orlando with uh, Sovereign Grace Churches here in our region. And, you know, I was struck by something common scene. You guys have seen it. You know, we got off the plane in Orlando and you're, you're going down towards baggage and there's a bunch of people, but several of them, standing there with, a, with signs of names, right? They're kind of, you know, they're looking at people as they walk by. They look very clueless, but they're just looking for somebody who will answer to that name. Of course, I was tempted with the other pastors to say, hey, y'all want to take a limo? We just need to tell this guy we're Mr. Anderson and we're good. <laughs> uh, then we come, we come home and we're getting off the plane and again we're walking through and there's another group of people with another group of signs and, and they're, these are a little more aggressive. They're asking us, are you a Rotarian? Are you a Rotarian? I mean, you can tell they're, they're, they're kind of not knowing what they're looking for. And I thought, you know, that, that sort of is a good picture in some ways of, of what coming to church can be like, of what our involvement in religion can be like. You know, we've got, a, we've got a sign, I don't know, on our sign it says something, maybe it just says God. And, and we're just walking around with this sign called God, and, and we're kind of looking for this thing called God, but, but in reality, we kind of don't know exactly what we're looking for. You know, not, if you know that, you know you might bump into God without knowing you bumped into God. Right? I mean... I, I could have been a Rotarian, just walk right past these guys, right? You're holding up this sign in your life, and you're looking for something to connect with God. But, I, you know, today we're going to see some things from these passages in Matthew, where Jesus Christ comes on the scene of humanity, right? In, in a sea of faces, one person is going to emerge into that setting. He's going to be the Son of God, and he's going to do things... And he's going to teach things. And he's going to encounter lots and lots of people. But if you've read any of the Bible, or you're familiar even with a handful of Bible stories from the New Testament, you know this already. Of all the people that encountered Christ, they didn't all respond to him the same way. Right? Crowds of people came and saw him and listened to him and were touched by him. And he's the son of God. But not everybody responded like he was the son of God. Not everybody had the same experience in their encounter. And so what I want us to see today, I want us to look here beginning in Matthew chapter 4 at the people who are encountering Christ and the different responses that they have to him. Because I think we can find ourselves somewhere in this group of people that we'll see here. Now I've chosen Matthew as our point to observe. You know, when we come to Matthew, you're, you're reading a, a gospel story. Most of us know that if we're familiar a little bit with the Bible. But I think it's helpful sometimes to know a little bit about what we're reading. Right? In Matthew, you have what's called a, a biographical narrative, but a selective one. God in, inspires a man named Matthew, who was, he used to be a tax collector, becomes a follower of Christ, and God inspires him to write down certain details about the life of Jesus Christ. Not every detail does Matthew write down. It would be a very big book if he did that. 
but he write down, writes down certain details, certain ones that God has put an emphasis on for him to emphasize. And so you'll kind of find that when you read through the Gospels, which are all similar, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're going to find that there's a little bit of some perspective that each one brings, that God wanted that perspective to be written by that writer, and maybe a little different perspective, more full perspective, helpful perspective in different ways to be written by others. But there's a purpose in the details. That's very important. Right, this, this letter, this book, if you will, of Matthew, it's going to include certain details for a reason. The book's trying to accomplish something. It's not just a book with no reason to it. When you read it, it's trying to accomplish something in you. So what, what starts off, if you follow Matthew, is you get this genealogy, this tracing of the physical family background of Jesus, And at the end, you have the followers of Christ who have begun to follow him throughout all these years being sent into the world on a mission, right? That's the beginning and the end. And so what we're going to do is pick up in Matthew chapter 4 and just grab some pieces from Matthew chapter 4 all the way to Matthew chapter 11. And I'm kind of centering this on a guy named John the Baptist. He's not going to play a major role, but but he's going to go to jail in the beginning and then he's going to ask a question from jail at the end. And we're going to get a chance to realize how people... Look to Christ in different ways. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John, speaking of Christ, when Christ heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. This This is northern Israel if you're trying to find it on the map. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time. Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, now let me just stop along the way here as we look at a few texts in this section. Here you have, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Right? Leading up to this time, we have an account of Jesus' birth, and um, very little is told to us about how he grew up. But at this point, Jesus is going public. So he's about to minister publicly, but something captures us right here in the beginning. Because when we're introduced to his ministry, it's as though we're kind of joining a story that's already in progress. Things are already happening. In this moment, there's there's this little bit of, of mystery taking place in the background here because we're told about a prophecy, about this land in which Jesus was living, and then Jesus comes onto the scene and he tells us that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's almost as though it's intended to grab us with information that we might not have. There's information being given here that leads us to this moment, that makes this moment very, very significant. And it's supposed to draw our attention into that. Now, Movies, when you begin a movie, you know, you're hoping to get people on the page with you in terms of what the movie's going to be about. 
you know, immediately as I'm, I'm, I'm reading through this passage, what comes to mind was, was the beginning of the movie, The Lord of the Rings. Now, if you read the book, you, you saw the same beginning. But if you saw The Lord of the Rings, immediately you're captured and drawn into wanting to see what is this movie going to be about. Because it, it starts off, if you know, the book doesn't have this, but the, the movie starts with this music, right? I love the musical score to The Lord of the Rings. But it's got that mystery music going on. And then it changes keys. And that does something to you, right? Just the change of key says, oh my gosh, this is serious. And so <laughs> there's this music taking place. And then there is a, an, an elfish woman who's going to narrate. And of course she has an English accent because otherwise it would just be boring. So I'm going to try and do her narration as an English man, right? So if you can imagine the, in the background, I almost asked uh, Henry to come up and play for me this morning while I read this, the violin. But that's playing in the background and she's saying this. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it. <laughs> uh, no, I, I didn't do school plays or anything like that in school. It took years before I'd do something like this in public. Uh, it, it began with the forging of the great rings, right? And then she goes through and narrates where these rings came from and how they were made and they were given to the elves and the humans, etc., right? History became legend. Legend became myth. And for two and a half thousand years, the ring passed out of all knowledge until when chance came, it ensnared a new bearer. Darkness crept back into the forest of the world. Rumor grew of a shadow in the east, whispers of a nameless fear, and the ring of power perceived its time had now come. Right now, this is the beginning of the movie. Right now, all this has been said. You got two and a half thousand years being gathered into this moment, and now the moment for the ring. Right, so I'm, at this point, I'm committed, right? I'm going to be watching this movie because I want to know what is about to unfold here. Now, and a little strange twist happens, right? Right when you get to, kinda to the end of that narration, the music changes. Right, do you remember the movie? It goes from... to a pleasant little valley full of green grass in the Shire. Right? <laughs> All of a sudden, everything is happy. There's peace everywhere. But the problem is, I know something these people in the Shire don't know. <laughs> I know there's big problems all around you. You just don't have a clue. They're all sweeping, right? And they're growing their crops. And they're about to have a big, giant birthday party. They have no idea that in just a few scenes, big, ugly horses are going to come visit you with big, ugly riders on them because there's something else going on. Well, we kind of get let in, let in on that. When you come to Matthew chapter 4, that's kind of the scene you're coming in on here. You're about to kind of zoom in on Zebulun and Naphtali, people who are living life, but we're informed that there's a bunch of history leading up to this moment. This is a strategic 
moment, something in the history of earth, something big is about to happen. That's why it starts with this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the people that are going to be visited, they're, they're sort of like shire people here. Right? Because they're described in a certain way, but I wonder if they knew about this description about themselves. Look in verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Do, do, you, do you think they describe their neighborhood that way? Hey, welcome to the neighborhood. Well, welcome to the shadow of death. You know, that. <laughs> They probably are shyer people. They're probably just walking around, not realizing what's going on around them. The significance of the events that are breaking out. The music behind the scenes is dark and menacing. Right? Sometimes you and I are kind of listening to uh, flutes and not the violin. Sometimes life is just sort of out of touch with what's happening spiritually. Something was going on spiritually here. Uh, Interesting, if you turn back to Isaiah, and you don't need to do that, you can just listen for a second, but Isaiah chapter 9 is being quoted here in this passage. A passage that's written 750 years before these events, at least. And this is what it says about this area, and this is why it's being quoted. But significantly, it's, it's, it's a point on a map, if you will that God had written out for people to be able to know, where are you in the story? Where are you in this story? You're not just wandering meaninglessly, meaninglessly through the countryside. Where are you in the story? Isaiah 9 says, For there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shine. Now this is 750 years before Christ comes into this scene. Now if you skip down, you're going to see something really familiar in verse 6 of this same passage in Isaiah. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, you guys recognize that passage? Right? For unto us a child is born. We sing that one at Christmas. So we're familiar with that. But do you understand that that Christmas carol comes 750 years before this event takes place. And Jesus shows up and now the time has come. And do you understand this is a significant moment of Jesus about to interact with people. Right? And you're going to see something here. Right? When we start to look at their interactions, we're going to get introduced to some of the characters in just a second. We're going to meet Peter and James and John who do something radical. They're going to give up their whole life and they're going to follow Christ. 
Now I'm wondering, what, what, what would make them do that? And if, you've, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll remember. Into the little flute-blowing, valley-green hobbit world comes news. And a couple of guys get the news. You remember? Frodo and Sam get exposed to what's really going on. The flutes are not going to continue to play. This is an historic moment for Middle Earth. And what do the two of them do? They leave and put their lives at risk and pursue a course that they never would have taken otherwise. Right, now, I think you see some of that in this moment. When you, when you understand and you get it, when you hear the other music that's playing, when you see the history that brings us to this moment and you see who it is that's talking to you, and how important who he is really is? Well, you might become a Sam or a Frodo. In this passage, it's Peter and James and John. Look in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Right, so here's Jesus coming onto the scene in a strategic, historic moment, and all kinds of people are going to interact with him. Right, there's individuals that get named here that interact with him, Peter, James, John. There's groups of people that we're going to see that interact with him, religious people, Pharisees, certain people who believe certain ways in their religion. Massive crowds are going to come to Jesus for a variety of reasons they're going to come. And they're all going to interact with Christ. But they are all not going to respond the same way to him. You need to see that in the Bible because otherwise you can sort of conclude something that the Bible didn't intend for us to conclude. Lots of people interact with Jesus who never respond to him the way they really needed to. Right? And that's who's in this story here. Now if we move and fast forward here, if you have a Bible, I'm not going to read these passages, but if you fast forward from this moment, because he begins to teach these crowds, and we get into one of the most famous teachings ever in Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is about to reveal himself in two ways. He's going to reveal himself through what he teaches, and he's going to reveal himself through power on earth. Right? These are the two ways that he's going to get revealed so that people could figure out, who are you? We're all bumping into you, but who are you, Really? Well, we get this great teaching, right? The Sermon on the Mount. A lot of us are familiar with bits and pieces of it. You know, we got the, uh, the blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Right, we, we've seen these things. Even if you don't go to church, you've seen some of these things. You've seen teachings in here about Jesus contrasting issues of how the law was taught. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, if you're angry in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. So Jesus is sort of giving them an update on here's what, here's what the law really means. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Uh, but let me tell you what that really is about. It's about the intent and the desires of your heart, not just what you pull off in the physical. So if you look upon a woman to lust after her, then you've committed adultery. There's teaching in here on divorce. where Jesus talks about the commitment between a husband and a wife and the permanency of it, that it's not to be undone. Now all this Sermon on the Mount is flying in the face of the way in which people live their lives. Right? Jesus is bringing something here. He's saying, you know, the kingdom is at hand. Let me tell you what kingdom life would look like if it was being lived out in front of you. And he begins to teach about the kingdom and explain to them what's happening. Um, great insightful things all the way into, into Matthew chapter 6. We get some insights on how not to be anxious. People are experiencing anxiety in their lives. What am I going to do? How am I going to pay my bills? What clothes am I going to wear? What if the crops run out? What if I can't feed my family? Right, here's realities that have never gone away, Right? Pretty sure there's a few people in the room here who experienced some anxiety this past week. I'm just guessing, thinking probably. Well, the Bible talks to those things. Sermon on the Mount goes there. Right? Do not be anxious, the Sermon on the Mount says, about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. You know, your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So you, you find out how the kingdom operates. The kingdom invades an environment of need, and it says, don't let the need overwhelm you. Look away from your need. Look to God. Look to him. That's how the kingdom operates. It's you looking to God. So we're learning all these things. There's the golden rule, right? You don't even have to have read the Bible to come across the golden rule in life. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. Right? So people live by these things. People come to the Sermon on the Mount and sort of extract from it bits and pieces of it. And they make use of it, right? People all over the place do that. Then we get to, to chapter 8, and we move from Jesus' teaching to now Jesus is about to do something that, if you will, uh, he's going to demonstrate his credentials. Right? The next couple of chapters here are Jesus interacting with the broken human world, one situation after another disease, he's going to come in contact with it. And he's just going to come up to the disease and he's going to speak some words or put his hands on or he's going to do something and change the course of that. Just like that. He, he encounters people who are dead. Disease and a fallen world have run their course completely and Jesus, though, reaches into death and reverses it and brings people back to life. People who suffered leprosy are going to be touched and are going to be released. People who experience demonic powers in their life. I mean, I know that's probably, maybe we don't have a category for that today. That people actually in their life are experiencing something unseen that touches their world in a destructive way and it's spiritual in nature. It's actually spirit beings with a personality. And I know that sounds archaic, but that's what the Bible says. And over and over again, Jesus steps into that realm, spirit beings that you and I can't control, and all he does is demonstrate he has control over everything. Right, so what are we trying to figure out here? Why does Jesus do all this? So we can just walk away and go, wow, cool miracle, wow, cool miracle, wow, cool miracle. 
Now, Jesus taught the kingdom, and then he demonstrated who he was in the kingdom. So if the next two chapters, 8 and 9, are Jesus coming in and saying, you know, I know this has been your experience, but I'm going to move this from here to there. Watch. And he does it over and over again. That's no longer that. It's this. And that's no longer that. It's this. This will no longer be this way. It's going to be this way. And you kind of get this sense of, who on earth is this guy? I mean, can you become this? Anybody else in human history who has the ability to step into humanity's experience and say, I'm going to alter the course of everything I want. Your life hurts in this category? All right, stop hurting, become this. You have a disease, no longer diseased, healthy. You're dead, no longer dead, alive. I mean, this is, this is an amazing demonstration of power here. This is Jesus making himself known. Now, when we get to the end of chapter 9... <clears throat> the end of chapter 9, Jesus gives this statement, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he, and he says, pray for the Lord to raise up laborers who will go out into the harvest field. What, now, what did we just see of Jesus? We saw Jesus step into humanity with a bunch of, they, humanity had a bunch of bad ideas going on about how to live life. And he steps in and he preaches a sermon on the mountain. He fixes the ideas of man. Humanity is broken, in need, desperate, bodily, emotionally, spiritually, Jesus steps into that realm. And he moves those things around. And then he stops and he grabs the hands of those who are following him and he says, listen, I just came back from wandering through the harvest field. The harvest is plentiful. There are people in need everywhere. I've been bumping into them as I've been walking around and I've been ministering to them. Now, I want you who are following me, I want you to go out and do the same things I've been doing. I want you to go out into the field of man's need, and I want you to rearrange things. I want you to rearrange their ideas. I want you to preach to them the gospel. I want you to touch their lives so that they know the power of God has come near to them. And so Jesus sends out these folks into the world to accomplish this. All right? Now, let me me just say this before I move on to John the Baptist here. There's a sense here because, remember, Matthew starts with a genealogy of Jesus and ends with the Great Commission. The Great Commission sort of picks up steam from, from here in Matthew chapter 10. But it's not like it's the, the first time the Great Commission is brought up. In Matthew chapter 10, the followers of Christ are given a commission in Matthew chapter 10. Go into the world and affect it. Go into the world and teach and challenge the ideas of the world. Go into the world that's broken and bring healing to it. Now that's the mission of Christians. Now in a moment, when we get to the end of the message here, I want want you to hold on to this thought. Because there's a lot of people who say that they've encountered Christ in their life. They've got some idea about Jesus Christ. But that's not their mission. I mean, they go to church. I read a Bible sometime. But that's not their mission in life. Right, right? Frodo and Sam leave the Shire because it's pressing and urgent. Peter and James and John, they've they got a thriving business. They're making money. They're fishermen. They own boats and nets and equipment and people working for them. 
But when they encounter the strategic moment where the God of glory is revealing his plan in the person of Christ, everything else becomes secondary. Everything else gets moved by this one person coming into their life. And a sense of deployment comes into their world. This sense of an echoing voice in their heart that says, Go into the world. The harvest field of people is desperately full. Go and do something with what you've experienced and what you know. Take it to the ends of the earth. I'm going to make you uncomfortable. If there's no going happening in your life, you have great reason to wonder, did, did I encounter Christ the right way? So when we get to the end of the message here, not everybody who encountered Christ goes anywhere. There's people who learned, heard what Jesus had to say. They were impressed. They came back to hear more. <clears throat> they never went anywhere for him. They didn't go into the world. There are people who experienced miracles. They were either dead, came back to life. They were broken and were healed. They were released from demonic spirits. Not all of them went anywhere for Christ. Not everybody who encounters Christ really comes to know him. Now, this is what's obvious in this, this text here. Now, watch what we move here. Because there's people encountering Christ, but then there's disciples encountering Christ. Disciples are those who are going to genuinely be affected unto faith in Christ. Now, let's look at this in Matthew chapter 11, right? We've come through all this and we get to this moment in Matthew 11. Now, remember, we started in Matthew 4 with John the Baptist going to jail. All right, so he's in jail all this time and this, these reports are coming to him. Matthew chapter 11, we pick up again with John the Baptist, verse 1. <clears throat> when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one? Now, immediately I learned something about John just by his question. Is John looking for something? Yes, he is, isn't he? He doesn't even ask the question, who are you? <laughs> right, that would be, that'd be a decent question, right? You're bumping into Jesus. You see him do these miracles. You see him teaching a way no one's ever taught before. There's something about him that blows your mind. Be a good question. Uh, who are you? But who are you gives away the fact that you don't know anything about the, you know, what the elf lady read. Right, the two and a half thousand years that have preceded things, the other things that have been said, the prophecy about Naphtali and Zebulun and about into this, there's going to come a moment where someone's going to come and do something specific. John the Baptist knows about that. So he's asking this question, are you the one? Is now the time? Is this the moment? Are you the one? Because if you're not the one, we'll keep looking. I'm going to look. But are you the one? Now, what's interesting here is, you know, John has very little more than what you and I had have right here. 
Now, I know, you know, to give you the full gospel account, John, before he goes to jail, early in Jesus' ministry, earlier, earlier than what we picked up, encounters Christ. Do you remember this story in John chapter 1? He encounters Christ. He's baptizing people in the River Jordan, and crowds are coming to him, right? A sea of faces are coming to John to be baptized. There's one face in the crowd of a man named Jesus Christ. And when John the Baptist sees him, I wonder what that moment looked like. He stops baptizing. I imagine he probably pulled somebody up out of the water. Didn't even look at him. Because he had been captured by there was one face walking towards him. Something in his heart told him. Now listen, he doesn't know much about Christ at this moment. But he knows a lot about what everything has been said leading up to that moment. See, you know, I find this sometimes. I find people are, are trying to discover Christ. You know, they've got to sign up. They're waiting in the airport of religion. Christ, Christ, Christ. You know, you want to say, hey, why don't you look at a picture of the person before you stand here? You know, <laughs> why don't you do a little bit of homework? All right, well, why don't you read the Bible? I find people there, they, you know, say they're, they're trying to discover Christ. They don't pick the Bible up. You read the Old Testament? It's a storyline leading to a moment that enables a guy named John the Baptist to look up one day and say, is he the one? And he's pretty certain in the beginning, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where do you get the picture of the Lamb of God? From the Old Testament, all the lambs that were sacrificed. He's the one. He's the lamb. A bunch of lambs before, they were little furry things. We slit their throats and drain their blood. But he's the lamb that everything was pointing to. Now, some time has passed. He ends up in jail. Don't know what's happening with him in jail. Doesn't encounter Christ anymore. Now all he hears is what Jesus is teaching and what Jesus is doing. He hears Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 9. That's what he hears. He hears Jesus going about affecting people. And from what he's hearing, he's, he's thinking, he's got to be the one. So he sends question back to ask him, are you the one? And Jesus go, tells him, go back and tell John what you hear of me and what you see. Listen, do you know that you can actually come to faith, real faith, in Jesus Christ for who he really is based on what John the Baptist knew? I mean, I know everybody kind of has that, that sense of, oh, if, if Jesus just show up right here in this church service, right here and stand before me, and he'd explain himself or he'd touch me, then I, I could believe, I could believe that. Well, listen, do, do you see already we've already met a bunch of people who met Christ along the way and a bunch of them are not going to end up believing in him? So you could be one of them and he could be here today and you could still not believe. Or you'd be like John the Baptist who based on what he read in the Old Testament had an idea about who that one was going to be. And when he showed up and started doing the things that that one was supposed to do, something in his heart went off. And he said, I think that's the one. And he kept asking, are you the one? See, he knew something in his heart that bore witness with him by God's grace to be able to see this one. Right Now, here's, here's a key. Here's a key I want to turn our attention to. I think I'll put this in your outline. Are you 
looking. And what are you looking for? There are a lot of people, I'm not even sure they go to the airport with a sign. You know, it's like, I'm busy leading my life, got a lot going on. You know, don't have a problem with Jesus, but, you know, are you looking? Really? Looking. John the Baptist is looking. And if you are looking, what are you looking for? What do you hope to encounter? What do you think this Jesus is going to look like? What do you think he's going to do to you when he gets near you? How will you read what he does to you? How will you know whether this is the one based on whatever it is that you're looking for? Right? Not everyone who encountered Christ responded the same way. Right? Before we get to Matthew chapter 4 in this passage is here, the main character who's encountering Christ right before this moment <clears throat> is the devil. Jesus is led into the wilderness. He has a face-to-face encounter and conversation with the devil. The devil has the goods on who Jesus is. It's not like he's coming up scratching his head saying, mm, you look vaguely familiar. What you doing around these parts? This is my territory here. Let's talk. No, he knows who he is. At the end of the conversation, though, the devil's not saying, I want to follow you. I want you to be my savior, and I want to run to the ends of the earth for your sake. The devil doesn't do that, does he? Religious leaders encountered Jesus. He tells a little bit of their story in in Matthew chapter 10. He tells it by warning his disciples. Look, you're going to go out, and when you go out there, they're going to treat you the same way they treated me. They said that I was a devil, and they're going to tell you the same thing. They're going to oppose you. They're going to bring persecution to you. Who was he talking about? He was talking about religious folk, (laughs) religious leaders in the community, people who had a form of religion that they didn't want anybody to mess with it. They encountered Christ, but they didn't believe and they didn't follow him. The crowds encountered Christ. Right? Massive crowds came and Jesus fed them all and he healed them all. He did amazing things with them. But at little points along the way, he would sort of jab at their motives. You've come back because I fed you, huh? He'd tell them. Right? I mean, if you just look in Matthew chapter 8 little comment Jesus makes, verse 18. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. A scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is sort of like the fine print and the I will follow you category. <laughs> this is one of those, are you sure you know what you're getting into moments? <laughs> Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Right? Jesus knew there were lots of people in the crowd that, that when it got real about believing in him, they were going to depart. Because they really didn't believe him. Although they had encountered him. They had real encounters with Christ that didn't end up in them following him. You got Peter and Andrew and Matthew. James and John, John the Baptist. People who met Christ and their whole world changed after they met him. They went on to follow him. 
Listen, do, do we validate and affirm that everybody who met Christ ended up responding the right way? I mean, can you just go with me here for a second? You know, we read the Bible, bunches of people are interacting with Christ. Do we just validate their experience? We say, you know what? Every one of them responded just as they should. Do you really think that? I would tend to think most of us would say, no, probably not, based on the characters that we've just met. Probably not. Listen, when, when I was growing up, I met lots of people who encountered Christ. They had some form of religion in their life, and that form of religion involved Christ. I can think of people when I was a kid, I used to go fishing a lot. My dad had some fishing buddies. Some of them were relatives. Some of them were just were friends for life, lifelong friends of his. Sometimes I couldn't tell the difference between who was related and who was not because they all became uncle so-and-so to us. And these were, these were men that, that I dearly love. They're, they're older and, and then most of them are dead now, but I dearly loved them growing up. And, and there, was, there was some form of religion in their lives. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't know the difference. None of them stood up and, you know, they'd use some interesting language sometimes that made you wonder what they believed about God, but none of them stood up and tried to convince me, don't you go wasting your life believing that Jesus stuff. None of them did that. I had one of them that we would drive, no matter where we were going, every time we passed in front of a church, he did the sign of the cross, every time. I never knew him to be a follower of Christ. I never knew him to be a, a John or a James who abandoned everything for the sake of Christ. I never knew him to speak affectionately about God. I never knew him to be so affected by his encounter with God that he got deployed into the bigger mission. That his life went from information about a guy who was God, who came to earth and went and died on a cross and was resurrected. Information about that. The devil knows those things. I never knew him to go past that. I knew a lot of those things. If you'd met me at some point in your life, you'd have been very, very hard-pressed to think that the encounter I had with Christ was a, a life-saving, faith-filled encounter. I mean, I was, I was a young guy going to church every week. You know, that's probably the best place for you to bump into me. Because apart from church, I was, I was a liar. I was a thief. It's kind of like the, the neighborhood kid who had enough guts to go in and steal cigarettes for everybody else in the neighborhood. So I, you know, figured out how to wear certain jeans and go in and procure for everybody else. It's my way of being cool. I got caught. That was rough. Um, my parents, my parents didn't know me as a kid. I was this kid trying to maintain a good image while I was growing marijuana on top of their carport. And going to church with them on Sunday. And never saying, you know, I didn't drive home from church going, look, I've got some issues with this whole Jesus thing, you know. I don't believe any of that. No, I was good. I was encountering something about Christ. And I was unaffected. And I was living life my own way for my own reasons. With some information about Christ in my life. See, not everybody who encounters Christ really encounters in the right way. Right? Much, much of my encountering Christ was related to whether, whether I was looking for something 
and what I was looking for. Because there did come a moment when I looked to Christ differently in my life. For years, I had not looked to him. But there came a moment where I did. Now, let me run through a few thoughts here before we get close to finish it. Question I put in your outline. When you come to the Bible, what are you looking for? Right? When you pick the Bible up, you've got a sign in your hand. Like you're like that person at the airport. You're, you're looking for something. What are you, what are you looking for there? How, how do you read the Bible? How do you approach the Bible? Right? Is, is it just some collection of random proverbs and parables and moral stories that, you know, we come to the Bible and we read these stories about people and this one did that and that one did that. And the moral of the story is you need to be nice to people too. Is that what this book's about? Do you read the Sermon on the Mount and walk away with uh, an instruction manual on how to be a better person? Is that what the Sermon on the Mount's about? Or when you come to the Bible, do you come to it like it's, it's this religious history book? You know, it's sort of recording the religious category of history throughout the ages. Right? And so you got these events, and then this happened, and then that happened, and this guy came along, and he did this, and then did that. We're just kind of recording history as we move through it, all related to religion. doesn't record everything, but religious history. You know, if you, if you think about history, because you have something totally different here than that. If you think about history, right, just think about the history of our nation. you got, you got Indians living here. you got Columbus going to come on the scene. you got colonizers who are going to, be coming here and living for a while. Then you got the, the great declaration of independence and the war of independence, right? So, you know, here's this crescendo moment with the birth of the nation of America. All right. But how did that happen? And what's leading up to it? You know, you just, you had some Indians living here and, you know, if you go back and pull out some ancient Indian writings, there's, there's nothing in their writing that foresees the signing of the declaration. Or one day, we will be a nation called America. There's nothing in their writings about that. If you could find the logs uh, that Columbus got, his journals, there's nothing in there that sounds like George Washington. That sounds like George Washington. Look, he's describing George Washington, the guy who's going to lead the nation into existence. Do you find that in anywhere? No. There's, there's no... Information on the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria about one day, one day, we will be a nation free, one nation under God, indivisible. You know, it's nothing in there about that, is it? It's just a bunch of random activity. There's some people that were living here, and some people living way over there, and a guy got on a boat, kept sailing, kept sailing, kept sailing, and accidentally found this place. Got out, interesting, went back, told them, there's some land over here. Some more people came over. Some people who didn't like living where they were living, they decided to come over. They decided, hey, once we get here, it might be good if we, I don't know, we got together, formed a nation. You know, I don't like the way those guys are treating us. Do you? No? Hey, how about you? You want to volunteer? You shoot some people, lead us. We'll go, we'll, we'll break away from them. Great. Boom! Sign a document and we're a nation. All right. Is there anything in history that leads you to believe when George Washington comes on the scene, everybody ought to be going, are you the one? <laughs> I mean, do you, can you imagine what he'd say? Am I the one what? <laughs> uh, cut down a cherry tree. Uh, there's no sense that there's a historic moment happening here. Now, when you come to the Bible, that is not what you have, is it? 
You don't just have a random collection of events that... Next on the random scene is a guy named Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Although we get a little more details from him. Wandered into some place in the north. Naphtali and Zebulun. Nazareth is what we know. Oh, okay. And we're just going to hear his story. He's just the next guy in the religious world that we get to hear something about. And that's what the Bible's about. If you read the Bible, you know that's not what you're reading. Because when you open it in Genesis, you don't go far before the Bible starts talking about the day that guy is coming and what he's going to do. Right, The elf lady is talking from Genesis 1 all the way up to this moment when Jesus is going to appear on the scene. When you come to the Bible, you're dealing more with a script than you are with history. God is telling you in advance, this is what's going to happen. This is who this person is going to be. So that when we get to Matthew chapter 4, and you hear this pronouncement, when John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew to a place. He is fulfilling the prophecies that were made about who he is. And now the time has come and he will come onto the scene and reveal himself through his teaching and through his power and eventually he will go to a cross and he will fulfill what's been spoken of for thousands of years. It will be fulfilled. That's who this person is. Now, my question, the question that we're probably asking, are you the one? Now, when it comes to religion, what one are you looking for? When you come to church, when you open a Bible, when you interact with the world of religion, what one are you looking for? Right, remember here, Matthew 4, verse 23. He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Right, so you got, you got people in this category. You've got religious people who like what they heard. Interesting ideas like they'd never heard before. And they come to get around Jesus to hear some more of those interesting ideas. You've got broken people who came to Christ. People whose lives were broken in their bodies, in their relationships, in emotions. They were broken. Listen, that was the starting point for me to coming to Christ. I was a teenager and just my life began to feel empty. It just felt like it, it's, not, it's not working. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't feel fulfilled. Uh, these things don't do it for me. Um, there's too much fear of life and people and things and what am I going to become and what if I don't and all that turmoil that was on the inside. Right? That's, that's the brokenness that turned me to Christ. That moment of being aware that my life needs something. And I turned to him. Now, future disciples are coming because of what you find right in the middle of this. He went and taught in their synagogues. Listen, there's lots of religious information out there. He healed people that were broken, but right in the middle there, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. Now, my question to you, what are you looking for? You come to Christ and you stand in the airport with your Christ sign up in the air. What are you looking for? 
You're looking for religious information to help you live a better life? Some people are looking for that. That's not the mission of Christ. He will walk past you. You will not have really encountered him. Are you looking for your brokenness to be fixed? That's not a bad starting place. But you can have your brokenness fixed and still not become a follower of Christ. Are you looking for a savior? When John the Baptist looked, what he was looking for was one who would save them. He was looking for a Messiah, a savior, is what he was looking for. Are you looking for that? in your life. You read this passage to you in your outline from Acts 3, and we're going to close. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. It says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus Fulfilled. This is the mission that Jesus was on, and he fulfilled that mission. Therefore, respond. How? Repent and return. Repent, which means turn away from your own life, your own way, and return to him. The one who fulfilled what's been spoken of for thousands of years. He came and he did it. He is the one. Why? So that your sins may be wiped away. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. About which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. This is a script we're reading. God has done exactly what he said, and the one whom he would send has been sent, and he is the one. Now ask yourself, is he the one? Is he the one you're looking for? Is he the one that's been spoken of for thousands of years? Does your heart tell you that he's the one? Your heart can tell you that. John the Baptist looked up and saw him and Amongst a sea of faces, he's the one. God can help you to see him as the one. Are you the one who can return me to, live, to a living relationship with God? A return to God. What your heart longs for more than anything else is to return to God. Is he the one? Is he the one who can wipe away your sins? Are you here this morning aware of your sins? Now, if you're not aware of your sins, you probably aren't aware of your need for a Savior. But if you are aware of your sins, then the weight of those sins is probably becoming a crushing weight because you can't get it off of you. Unless there's one who could wipe it away and remove them. Is he that one? See the one who can bring the living presence of God into your soul. That's what Acts 3 says. The return, the times of refreshing by the grace and mercy of God coming to take its residence in your soul. The presence of God. Is, is he that one? Listen, this morning, 
in just a moment, we're going we're gonna to stand up together. We're going to pray. And I, I'm assuming this is real. And in, in this many folks here, there's some here who are in one of the three categories. There, hey man, thanks for the thanks for the religious information. It's kind of interesting, a little different. Hadn't been around that before. That's cool. I'm good. You ready for the service to be over? <laughs> there are some who came in here and and your life is not working. You're like I was. I was a teenager in my life. It just it hurt. It was broken. That might be all you know right now is to call upon the one you think can touch your brokenness. And in a moment, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do that. That may be all you're after, to know that there's a God. The crowds came to Jesus for that. Their bodies were broken. Their lives didn't work. They came to him. I'm going to invite you to do that today. Just a minute. And God can meet you this morning. can begin to work in your life. Now let me tell you ultimately where he wants you to go. He doesn't want you just to hear religious information. And he doesn't just want to have your problems fixed. He wants your heart to be able to say, he's the one. He's my savior. He's the one who was given from me. He's the one who will return me to God. He's the one my heart longs for. And maybe you're here this morning and that's what your heart is saying to you right now. You're saying that Jesus is the one. In just a moment, I'm going to invite folks to come up and pray. And if you're in those categories and you want God to meet you this morning, I'm going to ask you in just a minute to, to come step out of your chair and just to come, come up here in the front and just make this a moment where you can get with God. And God will meet you, right? When crowds came to Jesus, they didn't sit up in bleachers with binoculars. They ripped open roofs. They climbed down to get up in his face. They wanted to touch the hem of his garment. See, when you really know you need Christ, it won't matter whether you're sitting in that chair or not. You will come after Christ if you really know you need him. So this morning, if you need him, don't stay where you are. Come up here and pray and touch God and let God reach back and touch you. And he will. We're going to pray for you when you come up and let God do that. Let's all stand up together. Lord, I thank you that you know us even though we may not know you. Lord, I thank you that there's never a moment when you're standing in the airport with our name and a sign, you don't know us. But Lord, there are lots of moments when we're standing in the airport with a name on a sign and we don't really know you. Lord, you have brought us here this morning so that hearts could know you. Lord, hearts that are in need could know you. Hearts that have been seeking. They've been seeking. They're like John the Baptist. They've been seeking and they heard something this morning that tells their heart, he's the one. And this morning, they're going to respond in faith. There's some folks here this morning that that their lives have experienced great brokenness. And Lord, they want to and need to run to you for some kind of shelter. I believe that there's some folks here that specifically, Lord, you have 
open their life to healing this morning. I had an impression for three folks here whose life experience has been one of these three categories. Living under the guilt of adultery. You made a decision that for a fleeting moment or season, you now live in a life of regret for the harm you have caused and the betrayal. See, this one can wipe away your sins, wipe them away. I believe there was one here who was living in the guilt of, of something related to an automobile accident. I don't know whether there's an injury or a death, but you have lived in the guilt of that. Do you know, God has you here this morning to wipe that away, to bring healing into your life. That's, that's what this one does and can do. So if you're here this morning and the condition that you find yourself in is to say, I, my life is broken and I need God to touch my life. I'm going to invite you right now to go ahead and come up. I know that might take a little bit of faith for you to do it, but, but this is God wanting to meet with you. This God who burst on the scene is still God today. This God who touched the crowds is still God today. He still wants to touch people's lives. He's still wandering through the harvest fields. And he's still telling disciples of his, go out into the harvest fields. People's lives are hurting. Go out into the field and bring them the gospel and bring them my care. Bring them my life. Touch them. Pray for them. Do what I did for them. People's bodies are broken. Go and bring the kingdom to their lives and touch their lives. Listen, this morning, You're not here by accident. You're not living some random set of events. There's a God involved in your life and he knew this morning was going to be here and he knew somehow you'd be here. Come up here this morning. Touch Christ. He'll reach back and touch you. Be like that woman who pressed through a crowd. This feeble old woman found herself in a crowd of thousands saw Jesus from a distance and moved through that crowd. Imagine she was knocking people over just to be able to touch the edge of his garment because her life was so desperate. She believed that God would touch her back and he did. Encounter of a lifetime changed her life. Listen, this morning, if if your sense is I am needing God this morning, come on up from where you are. In just a moment, Matt's going to lead us in a song. And I'm going to invite some folks from the church to come and pray for you and find out where the need is for you. So they're just going to ask you a quick question. How can I pray for you? What do you need from Christ today? And they're going to begin to pray for you and God's going to minister to you. So as we sing this song, you want to come. I'm going to ask the guys to go ahead and start coming to, to pray for these folks.